0: this morning to Luke chapter 15. The gospel of Luke chapter 15 is our text. We are going through the gospel of Luke and we're going to look at these first 10 verses of chapter 15. The tongue-twisting title of my message, Sinner Seeking Savior meets Savior Seeking Sinners. <laughs> How does he do it? Anyway why does he do it? (laughs) Luke chapter 15, because it's fun, because he can. But anyway, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, "...does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, give us The understanding of these words insofar as we are able to, insofar as they show us Jesus Christ, His love for us, how much He's given so that we could share in fellowship with Him and bring Him pleasure and enjoy this thing called life. We thank You and praise You in Jesus' name, amen. The words dramatic rescue always grab our attention. Whether it's at sea or on land or in the air, images of heroic search and rescue workers risking their own lives to save others fills us with awe. Should they fail during their extraordinary efforts, the people needing saving will perish. Our text in Luke 15 describes several dramatic rescues. Now the lost sheep might not seem all that dramatic to us. But it would have been very dramatic in their culture as the lone shepherd went out into the dangerous wilderness to find the sheep before it could be devoured by predators. And you've seen... Uh, videos of dramatic animal rescues, haven't you? There's one I saw just a few weeks ago of a horse that was in some kind of a mud bog or something and they they had to get him all hooked up and lift him out with a crane. And so this is really, you know, would have been a very dramatic rescue. If they had cameras in those days, they would have followed this guy out into the wilderness, never knowing when the cougar or the bear was going to come upon him that he would have to fight off to save this one precious sheep. The lost coin would probably not make our evening newscast. But both of these rescues are stories that illustrate God's dramatic search and rescue of lost souls. The chapter will continue in verses 11 through 32 with the dramatic rescue of the lost son. We know the parable as that of the prodigal son. Search and rescue teams have specialties. Most of you know this. There is mountain search and rescue, maritime search and rescue, aerial search and rescue. There are swift water rescue teams, mounted search and rescue teams, wilderness search and rescue teams. You name the landscape or the conditions and there's an SAR, search and rescue group, ready to respond. Maybe we should designate the preaching of the gospel as spiritual search and rescue. Men and women are lost all over the planet in every geography and cultural condition. Some realize they are lost and will reach out for the lifeline. Others do not sense the danger they are in, but they need rescuing just the same. If you are a Christian, you are a member of Jesus Christ's all-volunteer spiritual search and rescue team. Jesus is the Savior seeking sinners through you. Your specialty is is wherever you find yourself in the world surrounded by sinners. Wherever you work, wherever you go to school, wherever you live, that is your geographical specialty in terms of the team that you're on. We'll organize our thoughts around two questions. Number one, do you see yourself as the sinner seeking the Savior? And number two, do you see Jesus as the Savior seeking sinners? First of all, in verses 1 and 2, let's look at the... Do you see yourself as the sinner seeking the Savior? Now, the tax collectors and sinners were sinners, but so were the Pharisees and scribes. The tax collectors and sinners were reaching out for the lifeline, they were drawing near to Jesus Christ. The Pharisees and scribes did not sense the spiritual danger they were in, but all of them needed rescuing. Most of you are Christians, you are sinners who have found the Savior. But if we're not careful, we can become like the Pharisees and scribes. We can become sort of self-righteous and begin to distance ourselves from sinners. And ask yourself, do I look upon sinners with contempt or with compassion? And so when you're at work or at school or wherever you find yourself on your search and rescue team, really are we looking at sinners with contempt which is easy to do because so often they're giving us such a hard time and they're making life so difficult for us, or are we looking upon them with compassion? Well, as the chapter begins, we see sinners seeking the Savior. Verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. The word for sinners can indicate immoral people in general but it is also used to describe people involved in occupations that were considered incompatible with Jewish law. Tax collecting was one of those occupations. It was especially despised. Tax collecting was a franchised business. The Roman government sold franchises... And so you'd buy your tax collecting booth and they would give you an area. Some of you have had franchise businesses, you know that you know, they're only supposed to sell the franchise for a certain area so that you're guaranteed a certain amount of clientele. And so the Roman government would sell a little tax franchise booth and you would collect the required taxes, anything else you could extort from the people was your profit. A Jew who purchased a Roman tax franchise was considered a traitor on top of being a thief. And so it was an extremely despised profession. This is why it's so amazing that Matthew was chosen as a disciple of Jesus Christ. A call to follow the Lord right out of his tax booth. This would have been an unheard of insane discipleship idea at the time. Now, the particular gripe of the Pharisees and scribes is going to be that Jesus hung with people whose jobs seem to disqualify them from the things of God. Many complaints against Jesus. Today's complaint is that he's hanging around with people of questionable occupations. There are always going to be jobs that are not compatible with godliness. I was listening to the news uh, maybe a month ago, and uh, apparently in... Germany, prostitution is a legal business and women are regularly employed as prostitutes the same way that they would be employed as a waitress or a, a bank teller or uh, you know, the president of a corporation. And so here's what happens. Listen to this logic. I love the world's logic and, and I say that tongue in cheek. But So let's say you're a woman, let's say you're a bank teller, you're a woman, you're a bank teller in Germany and you lose your job and you apply for unemployment. And so you go to the unemployment office and they typically send you out to look for jobs because, you know, they'll pay you for a while, but they want you to find a job. Well, they started sending women to brothels to become prostitutes because it's a legal occupation. And the women, of course, a lot of them were saying, well, no, I don't want to be a prostitute. And so they would cut them off from their benefits, saying that they had refused a perfectly legal job. I love it. Now we would think, I I think most of us would agree that prostitution is an incompatible occupation. Amen? Okay, we're on board with that. I just want to know what we're dealing with here. Now perhaps some of you actually found yourself in such a job when you came to know Jesus and had to quit. Not a prostitute, but there are many other occupations that you can think of that really are not compatible with walking with the Lord. Uh, mafia hitman, uh, <laughs> drug smuggler. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you'd have to give up. The question, however, for us to ponder is slightly different because we're probably not involved in those jobs, so we always want to talk about something that's relevant to ourselves. The question is this. Are people in questionable occupations drawing near to us? Because this is what was happening to Jesus. For their part, The Pharisees and scribes wanted to repel such people. One popular Jewish saying went like this There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. And so the idea of the Pharisees and the scribes was that sinners gave God no pleasure and that he was happy when they died and were out of his presence and perishing in hell. The religious Jews would only receive former sinners long after they fully converted and proved themselves by many good deeds. And even then, former sinners were always second-class citizens, spiritually speaking. Those people drew near to Jesus. There was something about him and his words that they found irresistible. Actually, everything about Jesus was irresistible to sinners. And they found no reason to be repelled by him, but every reason to be received by him. Come just as you are must remain a major emphasis in our hearts as Christians and in our church. We might agree about certain incompatible occupations, but what about things like subculture differences? You know, there's always the, what we I don't even know what the mainstream culture is, but Whatever you're into, you probably think that's what it is. But there are always these little subcultures, and if you have kids growing up, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There's always new ways of dressing and acting and all of that kind of thing. And, and, and you know, oftentimes we, we struggle with that, and we can go, I think, sometimes too far and give people the impression that, that God would not even receive them because of the way they act or the way they're dressed or the way they look. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was long hair and bare feet and rock music. The Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s, kids that were hippies and and rock and roll, they were getting saved by the thousands down in Southern California. Long-haired hippies with no shoes, getting saved, coming into the church and being turned away from most churches because they had long hair and they were barefoot. Many churches were putting up signs to deal with this influx of sinners, uh, no bare feet allowed in the sanctuary, and, and those kinds of things. And, and so it was a problem. Today, it's more like Gothic clothing and tattooing and body piercings and rock music. Rock music seems to be the only real standard that we can all agree on that's always a problem. But... Uh, Really, you know, we need to be a little bit careful here. I mean, we'd have to look at specific examples and talk about too many specific things for, for, you know, we're not here to give a, a primer on how Gothic is Gothic and what about all this other stuff. But it's just to raise our awareness. It's all too easy to repel sinners rather than receive them. And so come just as you are. The Pharisees, verse 2, and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Their complaint was really a compliment. These guys, students of God's Word, brilliant theologians, super scholars. You have to see that about these guys. For so many years we've been putting down the Pharisees and the scribes that we think they're some kind of morons, but these are the top religious guys. These are the guys who had studied the scripture, who knew it inside and out, who, for the most part, if some of my research is correct, had memorized the entire Old Testament, or well, the Hebrew scriptures, and could recite it from memory. I can't remember my social security number. But, uh, you know, so these guys are smart guys, but they had missed the nature of God. In all of their study, they had missed the nature of God. Now, listen. Intellect does not automatically make you more spiritual. Intimacy and not intellect should be your goal. We're not against intellectualism or study or becoming smarter or anything like that. But our culture is a culture that values intellect and puts a premium on it. And we tend to look up to people who are intellectual and smarter than us. And that's okay as long as they also understand the nature of God. But if they don't, who cares? You, whoever you are, you know, maybe you think you're the dumbest person in the room. Well, you and I can have a contest later and I'll prove that I am. But you can sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and receive the most precious insight about his nature and his character, about his goodness and grace and mercy. And some of the most marvelous literature ever written has been born out of the simplicity of, of people who were not mighty or not smart or not intellectual. Uh, and it's a, it's a tremendous thing. And so don't feel intimidated and don't be inhibited from spending time with the Lord. Now you can study God's word and not see God in it. Unbelievers do it all the time. But believers can miss God too as they dig into the word. I will never suggest that we quit studying the Bible. But I do suggest we read it more as a love letter rather than a textbook. You don't have to read far in the Bible to discover that God loves and seeks after sinners. He came seeking Adam and Eve right after they'd sinned. And he's been seeking all of their kids ever since. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin will highlight the sinner seeking Savior. What I don't want us to overlook is that these tax collectors and sinners sought out Jesus. Now there's a whole lot of systematic theology about who searches for who when it comes to getting saved. Is God searching for you or are you searching for God? It's this ages old debate over God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We're going to see in these three parables that God seeks sinners... But we're also seeing that sinners seek after God. In other words, as we've pointed out many times in the past, God is sovereign and man is responsible. Both are simultaneously true. And so God here portrays sinners as seeking after him. If sinners are not drawing near to us, then maybe we are repelling them rather than receiving them. We may not be doing it maliciously. Some believers, or some who call themselves believers, do it maliciously. There's a group, many of you have perhaps encountered them on television or uh, in the print media. They regularly attend the funerals of avowed homosexuals, and they hold up the signs that read, God hates fags. And so here you are, you're at a funeral homosexual individual has died maybe there's no indication obviously that they knew the Lord they died in their sins Uh, they died in a lot more sin other than just being a homosexual by the way and they've passed into a Christless eternity and uh, the gospel that these people are proclaiming is God hates fags malicious and vicious uh, repelling of sinners now, we're not doing things like that, but we should be sensitive to other less obvious ways in which we might communicate our disgust with sinners. As I mentioned earlier, are we judging their clothing or subculture? Do we expect people to change outwardly before they change inwardly? Do you remember you can't do that? You know, you know it's, I mean, you can clean up a little bit on the outside, but but... Change has to come from within and then work its way out. You have to be born again, and then you change. You don't clean yourself up to come to God. In the 60s and 70s, when they were turning kids away from church, it wasn't that, hey, if you go cut your hair and buy a pair of shoes, even flip-flops, come on, you know, then then God will receive you. God had already received them. And many of them, as they came in, they did change. Some for the better, some for the worse, as far as their outward appearance. But hey, give it time, and most of those hippies lost their hair. It, it became a non issue. So, you know, but do you understand what I'm saying? It's easy for us to have walked with the Lord for a while and then to begin to put these kind of externals onto people because we're not familiar with that culture anymore. We're not familiar. And and maybe we work around sinners or we live around sinners or we go to school with sinners. And since they're all giving us such a hard time, we, we have a tendency to act almost contemptibly towards them. Not in a violent, vicious, terrible way, but we don't really have a compassion for them like we ought to because they're bothering us. And so we want to just ask ourselves these questions. Sinners were drawn to Jesus Christ like some kind of a spiritual magnetism. And they ought to be drawn to us because He is in us by His Holy Spirit. And if they're not then it may be that we are repelling them and they don't believe that they would be received if they came to us. It's worth praying about. Now, some sinners really are seeking the Savior. Whether they are or not, the Savior is seeking them, which brings us to our second question, do you see Jesus as the Savior seeking sinners? The three parables in this chapter all go together, really. They describe the search and rescue of lost souls and the subsequent joy of finding them. The lost sheep and the lost coin focus your attention on the searcher. The lost son or the prodigal son will focus your attention on the pusses, And that's what makes it a little bit different. Because when you read the, the parable of the prodigal son, which we will, Lord willing, next week, it ends with a condemnation of the prodigal son's brother, who really is mad that his brother came back. And it's a picture of to these Pharisees and scribes of a terrible attitude in their heart, that they would rather people perish than come to know the Lord. And so we're going to look just at the lost sheep and the lost coin, which focus our attention on the searcher. And so he spoke this parable, verse 3, to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which he lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Most farms, ranches, and businesses have a certain level of what they call acceptable loss. We have acceptable losses in the cafe. They're more acceptable than you think because then I eat them on Monday. But anyway... So there's really, you know, it's an acceptable loss of a scone or two, you know. But, but, you know, you're going to bake more than you need sometimes, and, and that's an acceptable loss. But to a shepherd, there is no such thing as an acceptable loss. If one sheep out of a hundred, if one sheep out of a thousand was missing, the search was on. Now, you and I read this, and we think, 99 sheep, one sheep stay with them, go in the wilderness and fight bears and cougars. I'm sure it's dead by now. You know, I mean it just I mean it's it's an acceptable loss, but this is not how they thought shepherds were the animal search and rescue heroes of Bible times. Think of it, in the Old Testament, David could recall the times that he as a young boy, think of your kid, 16, 17 years old out tending the sheep. One of my sheep is missing grab my sling and a few stones and I'm out there. Next thing you know, he's fighting cougars. He's killing bears. Cougars. Now, lion in the Bible, it's kind of a mountain lion. Think of the mountain lion attacks every now and then you hear about in Southern California. Hey, I'm jogging. Oops, I'm dead. I mean, cougars come out of nowhere. They come out of no. I was watching this the other day. They come out of nowhere. They pounce on you and bite through your neck and drag you off. I mean, remember years ago the Ford Mercury Cougar commercial? How it would sit on that. They don't do that. They don't give you a word. They say, I'm a cougar and I'm coming, you know. They're violent, vicious animals out in the wild. And so David's like, hey, where's my sheep? And, and he's out there. Bears, this isn't gentle Ben. It isn't Bart the Bear or anything like that. I mean, these are killers. These are wild, predatory beasts. And, and he's taken them on because he is shepherd search and rescue, I mean, on the job. And it, it, was a, it was an independent thing. It wasn't like you got all the other shepherds together for a shepherd posse. I mean, you're just, I'm going, somebody watch my 99 sheep or my 999 because I've got to get that one dumb sheep that's been giving me so much trouble. And then he found it and he'd put it on his shoulders and tie its legs around his neck and walk back with it in a vulnerable position. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God is portrayed as just such a shepherd over his people. Jesus' hearers would have immediately understood this illustration. None of them would have thought this behavior odd or extreme. They would have expected that this is what a shepherd would do. And that gets us to the point of the parable, verse 7. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd searching for individual sinners, using extraordinary and heroic measures to save everyone. I would say that leaving heaven, taking on a human body, being subject to your own creation to a certain extent, and then dying on the cross were extraordinary and heroic measures that Jesus took as our shepherd. This word, repents, indicates that a person has realized they are a sinner in need of a savior. The 99 just persons are the Pharisees and scribes. They think that they are just. They think that they are right or justified before God and have no need of repentance. That's why they can say, Look at this man receiving sinners. Look at us. We are the just and the righteous. And they put themselves in a completely different category. They don't see themselves repenting anytime soon. And the parable is about that. Now, one thing that catches my attention in these words is this phrase, there will be more joy in heaven. Now, heaven by both definition and description is a perfect place where there is fullness of joy. You don't have bad days in heaven. I mean, think about it. When we get to heaven and you, you, know, you go out to pick up the daily news or whatever, you know, and you say, hey, how you doing? I'm having a bad day. Well, no, you're not. You're not having a bad day. So, heaven is this fantastic place, and yet it says that there was more joy. And so, somehow, perfect, full joy can increase in heaven. If there is such a thing as a joyometer, it goes off every time somebody receives Jesus as their Savior. Hey, churches have thermometers, right? Haven't you ever been in a church with a thermometer? We're almost there. And, and, uh, There's some hey now I know you think I'm being facetious because I am but listen if if Jesus says there's more joy then joy must be measurable because more is a measurement right so there has to be a way to measure joy and I'm thinking it's the joyometer now if you have a better idea I'm willing to hear it but in the meantime we're going with that And so this joyometer is just spinning. Think of it. Now, maybe we're here this morning or even in our, 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 take your workplace or at school. Maybe you've been praying for the same three people for ten years and they're just not getting it. They're just not coming to the Lord. But all over the world, people are getting saved left and right, second by second, millions uh, maybe every day. I mean, this thing is spinning like crazy. There's an angel just with a grease gun on this thing, you know, if there is such a thing. I mean, this is great. And so joy somehow, though it's perfect and full, can increase. That'll blow your mind. See, to me, instead of worrying about, is God sovereign or does man have responsibility, I'd rather sit around and think about, how does joy increase? Man, that's a good one, you know, because all that does is draw me closer to Jesus Christ and make me realize how much he loves me and how much more I can long for him. And so every time a soul is saved, it's broadcast somehow in heaven. This is another thing I don't understand. It says heaven, the whole place, knows that somebody got saved. There must be like an emergency broadcasting system, you know. I mean, think of it. You know, when you're driving in your car and that thing comes on, you know, and you're like, wow, what just happened? You know, it's the emergency broadcast system. If this was a real emergency, you'd be dead. But, uh, you know, and and so somehow all heaven knows, and this is happening all the time, and and the joy is just getting bigger and bigger and greater. It creates a party-like atmosphere, not unlike our bulletin folding Thursdays. (laughs) The parable of the lost coin is similar in its teaching. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I lost. Now, silver coin, this may have been a situation where sometimes the Jewish brides received a, um, I want to call it a bracelet because I don't know what to call it, but it would be worn around the forehead, 10 silver coins, like a tiara kind of a thing, but that's not the right word either, but a garland. (laughs) Thank you. God bless you. But anyway, (laughs) man, that college education's kicking in, but uh, a garland of 10 coins and it would be similar to your engagement ring or your wedding ring. And those of you who have that big rock, you know, on your wedding ring, both of you, imagine losing your diamond out of your wedding ring. Now, if your husband comes in and he says, oh, it's no big deal, I'll get you another one, then you know it was a cubic zirconia. But, I mean, I've, you know, I mean, when you lose something valuable... You're going to find that thing. I mean, you're backtracking and you're buying metal detectors. And, and uh, I remember we lost something. It's coming back to me. We lost something one time. We, I got a metal detector and went and looked for this thing, you know. And so that's the situation. Now, the men in Jesus' audience could relate to the parable of the lost sheep. It was kind of a manly story. The gals could relate to this one. This was more of a domestic story. I only say that to remind us to stay relevant ...when talking about Jesus to other people. You have to think about your audience, whether it's one person or many people. Sure, you want to talk about what's on your mind or on your heart, but you need to bring it to their level. And that doesn't mean their level is below you or beneath you. It just means you have to talk in a way that other people understand learn something about their fears and dreams and hopes and desires, their language, if they have some kind of a specialized group or or whatever, and, and get involved with them. Now, one lost coin was a big deal to this poor woman. She tore up her house looking for it. An extensive, intensive search was made. Jesus, like this woman, mounts an extensive, intensive search for every single soul that is lost. We said earlier that some sinners don't realize that they are lost. They're not actively seeking the Savior, but he is nevertheless seeking them. The lost coin is interesting because it is a totally inanimate, lifeless object. It's lost, but it doesn't know it's lost. I think it represents the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was searching for them to rescue them just as much as he was the tax collectors and the sinners. Don't miss this pharisees and scribes there are times jesus looks at them and says you are hypocrites and he has strong words of of um, rebuke for them but he was always reaching out to them seeking to save and rescue them as well verse 10 likewise i say to you there is joy in the presence of the angels of god over one sinner who repents now this gives us some more detail about the joyometer in heaven Joy in heaven earlier was a general expression. Here you see something more specific. Notice it doesn't say that the angels rejoice. I think they do because they're on the same wavelength with what's happening. But what it says is there is joy in the presence of the angels. God is pictured in scripture as in heaven on his throne surrounded by angels. God is in the presence of angels in heaven. And so I don't think it's going too far to say that God is the one who is rejoicing when a sinner is saved. Angels certainly, but God specifically. Do you see Jesus as the Savior seeking sinners? Well, of course you do. But you and I need to be reminded that Jesus is seeking sinners. Here's what I mean. Your purpose in life as a Christian is to enjoy Jesus Christ. You were created for God's pleasure. In His presence, the Bible says, is fullness of joy. And you are commanded in the Bible to have joy that is full and remains. All of that adds up to that you should enjoy Jesus Christ. The purpose of the church, which is just a bunch of Christians meeting together, is to enjoy the Lord by exalting Him. There are two byproducts of enjoying and exalting the Lord. We are edified when we do it, and we evangelize after we do it. To edify means to build up. When Christians who enjoy Jesus get together and exalt Him, they get built up in what they believe. So we come together, we worship the Lord, we study His Word, we exalt Him, enjoy Him, and we're edified and built up. But we're only here at church for a short while, Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night, perhaps a few other isolated times during the week or year. Most of the time you are out in the wide world where we've learned that there are sinners needing rescue, and thus you evangelize. Now, I did not say that you were an evangelist, but you do evangelize. People find out you're a Christian, even if you try to hide it. Not that you would, but they find out nevertheless. Hey, I uh, was driving down Doughty the other day and I saw you getting out of your car in front of a church. Ah, uh, 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 I lost my contact lens. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we don't do that, but people do find out that you're a Christian. Then, like it or not, they watch you and they listen to you. They read your life as a letter to them from God. Now, I'm not making that up. Paul the Apostle says that. We are living epistles known and read by men it 's a beautiful picture, really. So you, as a Christian are a letter that other unbelievers are reading it's been said uh, before that your life is the only Bible some people will ever read, and that's more and more true in our culture where the Bible is taken out of schools and nobody really knows what the bible's all about and You know, most people haven't even heard of Jesus. And so your life is the only Bible people are reading. So if people are reading your life as a letter from God, what kind of literature would you say your life is? This is kind of uh, an interesting uh, exercise. Would you see your life as a textbook about God, Uh, a rule book from God, an owner's manual, a technical journal, an instruction manual? a how to book a self-improvement guide. You know, I think most people think of Christianity as a self-improvement guide. If you go to any Christian bookstore, most Christian bookstores that the predominant books are how to be a better something. How to be a better husband, how to be a better father, how to be a better everything. And and most people, even Christians believe that that's the essence of Christianity is to become a better something. Not to worship God, not to lose yourself in the intimate presence of God or any of those things, but just how to improve my already decent life. And so this is the thing. There's, think of all the other types of literature that, that there are that are possible. And, and many of them are contained within a relationship with God. Certainly, uh, you know, the Bible is a textbook and a rule book and an owner's manual and all of these things. But overall people should see you as God's love letter to them. Because you're not really dealing with Christians out in the world that you evangelize. They don't need a textbook. They don't need a how-to manual. They don't need technical specifications about the Christian life. They need a love letter from God. They need to be able to read your life as if you enjoy the Lord and as if He has joy over you. And that there is something about that love that creates a hunger in them so that they are drawn to God through you. Do people know how much you enjoy Jesus? The danger Christians always face is that of becoming ingrown. It happens when we focus on our own needs and desires as believers. We concentrate solely on ministries that feed ourselves. Ingrown Christians become inbred. They quit searching for sinners. Inbreeding leads to infighting. When we get ingrown, inbred, and start our infighting, you can bet sinners are not going to be drawn to Jesus Christ. The solution is really, really simple. Constantly remind yourself and remind others that Jesus is seeking sinners. And then approach Him as if He has written His love letter to you. And you will begin to express to others the love of God that's shed abroad in your heart by His Holy Spirit and is overflowing to them. Let's pray together. Father, we're great students of Your Word, but in doing it, Lord, we want to grow intimately more than we want to grow intellectually. Nothing wrong with intellect, nothing wrong with books and reading and study. In fact, more of us need to do that, Lord. More Christians need to do that. But we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we're to just enjoy walks in the garden with you the way you did with Adam and Eve long talks with you Lord that there is an intimacy and a love between us Jesus you said that your love for us was like a bridegroom's love for his bride and, and Lord we want to enter more and more into that because uh, it is love that's going to draw people sure they need to know the law they need to understand that they're sinners and that they have fallen short of the glory of God. But, Lord, it appears that the sinners in your, uh, when you were on the earth knew that by coming into your presence, by being drawn to you, Lord, and they repented that they might follow you. At any rate, Lord, we want to be more of what you want us to be, less of what the world sees us as. We want to receive rather than repel sinners. Do that, we pray. All right, why don't we stand and end our service as we always do with a final chorus. I also like to remind you that some of our guys will be down here to pray with you. And uh said first service that they would be here to answer your toughest Bible questions as well. So bring those or not. But, uh, hey, God bless you. It's, it, you know, it gives me great joy to meet with you on Sunday mornings and I know many of you are filled with joy as we worship the Lord as we study His Word and, and it's true you know there's that sign outside some churches that says now you're entering your mission field and that's just another way of saying what we're talking about this morning but I like, I like this concept that Jesus draws out there is a I mean people are perishing every bit as much as they were lost in the wilderness like sheep about to be devoured by cougars The Bible even indicates that the devil is what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You and I, whether individually or corporately, we are God's search and rescue team. And we're assigned at work, at school, at home, in our neighborhood. Uh, And we're surrounded by sinners. And what they need to see is that you love Jesus Christ. And that he loves you and he also loves them. And so let's just pray this week, just ask the Lord to draw sinners to you. And then don't be repelled by them, but receive them. Amen? Amen. God bless you.
1: Yo